You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Onyi Afroako. And I'm Tilly Robinson. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, July 18th, 2022. Later in the program, we have an excerpt from Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people on WFHB. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine. Our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your daily headlines. At the Monroe County Council meeting on July 12th, Councilmember Peter Iverson gave an update from the convention and Visitor Center Board. He said that the convention center has been successful lately, but does not have enough space to meet demand. Uh, Yes, I'd just like to share that the Convention and Visitor Center Board met on June 24th, and that tourism here in Monroe County is going very strong. So we're really excited that uh, everyone's coming here for events and are booking hotel rooms and things like that. I did want to mention that we had 10 events that wanted to use our convention center, but there just wasn't room uh, for those events. And so it's nice that people are reaching out to us that want to come here, but just simply are not able to because of that. And um, we have done some analysis and found that that's, uh, they would have spent around $2.6 million here in Monroe County if we had had that space. So uh, that's a, just one of those indices that I thought I'd throw out there and uh, We're doing well, and I think we can continue chugging along here. Dave Schilling asked the council to approve additional funding for the legal department's litigation and litigation deduction lines. We're requesting an additional appropriation of $75,000 for our litigation line. And we have several related lines, litigation and litigation deduction. And the litigation deduction line is used to pay to reimburse insurance companies for defense costs um, because we have a, de- a deductible of about $15,000 per case on, on, on our insurance policies. The litigation line is used for litigation expenses such as depositions or if we need to hire outside counsel. And uh, recently we have been involved in a, a few cases requiring outside counsel one being the Huff cases in federal court and the other being the Houston South case also in federal court. So we're requesting um, this this, uh, $75,000 to cover anticipated uh, attorney's fees in those two cases. And just for uh, purposes of putting this uh, request together, we have uh, allocated approximately $50,000 for the Barnes and Thornburg uh, fees and $25,000 for the uh, Eubanks fees for the Houston South case. The council voted to approve the appropriation of funds with council member Marty Hawk voting no and council member Jeff McKim abstaining due to a conflict of interest. 
The next meeting will be held on August 9th. Assistant Director for the Arts Holly Warren gave an update on the Bloomington Arts Commission's financial status and the Art Feasibility Study at their meeting on July 13th. First, Warren outlined how much the Commission has spent and how much is left for the fall grant cycle. I just want to share that again overall. Uh, for our Winter Arts Projects grant cycle, we allocated a total of $51,874. Um, and so you can see here how that money was distributed amongst our existing accounts. Uh, so before the funds were distributed, we had uh, $26,775 left over from our BAC Recover funds from 2021. So we zeroed that out by paying out some of our BAC grant funds. Um, and then um, from 2021, we also had $40,000 in BUEA Zone Arts Grants funds available. Of that 40,000, we spent 17,844 during the Winter Arts Project cycle. So that leaves us with a total of $22,156 left over from the BUEA Zone Grant funds for 2021. Um, and if you go down a little further, you'll see that we still have the total $40,000 of BUEA Zone Arts funds available still. So that makes up a lot of the money we still have to spend. Um, because uh, so much of the funds from the arts project cycle came out of BAC versus BUEA Zone funds, we did dip into the 2022 BAC grant funds allotment. So we started with this year at $41,616. And after allocating allocating all the funds for the BAC Arts cycle, the first one of the year, we are down to $34,361. <laughs> so with the total money we have left from 22's BAC grant allotment, 21's BUA zone grant allotment, 22's BUA zone grant allotment, and our 2% increase, Overall, we still have $97,349 to spend towards grants this year. That's in addition to the $3,461.65 we had to spend on operating expenses. Warren shared findings of the art feasibility study done by Trahan Architects. Warren said there were three main takeaways Trahan found from the focus groups and surveys. Trahan came up with a list of what they have identified as the most important needs and factors for the arts in Bloomington. Chief among those are the need for space to make stuff. Um, they have determined that at this point in time, sorry, we have a lot of performance venues. There's a diversity in what we have to offer as far as like what is being shown, what kind of size it is, what the seating options are. Um, they And that includes I use facilities. So they're like, look y'all, you're not necessarily going to benefit from a brand spanking new like 1000 plus venue in town. Their recommendation instead of going that route is to work more with IU to make their sp spaces more accessible to the community, either as a performer, which I know is hard, and we'll talk about that, or as an audience member. Um, so that's one of the challenges they saw. They're like, okay, the space is there. The challenge is how do we get people effectively into those spaces? Commission member Nick Blandford commented that although Indiana University has the facilities, 
he did not think IU would be willing to share their performance spaces with the public. IU facilities, in improving access, not going to happen yeah, unless it's I... the full force of <laughs> the mayor's office, the city council, and everyone else getting in the room with the administration. Yeah. It, it, the only way it's going to happen is in smaller scale collaborations, yeah. Yeah. you know, arts and humanities, mm -hmm. Gerard's office, working with small groups. Yeah. Yeah. But we're not touching the MAC, we're not touching the IU Auditorium. Warren said that the office of the mayor wanted Trahan to look into the convention center to attract more people to town and to introduce them to Bloomington's art scene. She emphasized that there are no final decisions to be made yet. The next Bloomington Arts Commission meeting will be held on August 10th. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of Kite Line, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. Kite Line airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. A 31-year-old man named Elijah Muhammad died on Sunday in a Rikers Island jail, prompting the firing of a correction officer involved in the incident. He was the 10th person to die this year after being held in city jail custody. It is rare for the agency to fire a correction officer so soon after a detainee's death. Fatal incidents have become a regular occurrence over the past two years in the Rikers jail complex. The fired corrections officer was still on probation after having been hired recently and was not yet entitled to the same protections given tenured members of the city correction officers union. The death and the disciplinary action that stemmed from it came as city officials were resisting calls for a federal court takeover of the Rikers Island complex, where an inability to staff the jails during the coronavirus pandemic has forced detainees to go without food or basic health care. The possibility of a federal takeover has hung over Rikers Island since April, when the U.S. attorney in Manhattan raised the prospect of appointing an independent overseer for some or all of the city jail system. At a hearing soon after, a federal judge reviewed a plan prepared by the Correction Department for reducing violence at the complex and ordered the department to revise it. Officers brought up for discipline have a right to have their cases heard before an administrative judge, and the officer can appeal the decision after their case is decided. Often, it can take years for the department to resolve even the most egregious cases of officer misconduct and negligence, and the resolution does not always end in an officer's firing. In 2019, when officers stood by as a young man attempted to hang himself in a cell for seven minutes, the worst punishment any of them faced was suspension. Last month, a week after a federal judge forestalled the federal takeover of Rikers, three detainees died in three days. Antonio Bradley, 28, died on June 18th, three days after he was granted compassionate release to Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx. Mr. Bradley, who had been held in a mental observation unit on Rikers, used his sweater to hang himself in a courthouse cell following a hearing in the Bronx criminal court. He had been hanging for several minutes, before jail officers noticed him. Two days later, Anibal Carrasquillo, 39, died at the George R. Vierno Center. The cause was a possible drug overdose. 
Hours before he died, Mr. Carrasquillo complained of chest pain, but officers ignored him. The following day, Albert Dry, 52, died at the Bellevue Prison Hospital Ward, according to the Legal Aid Society, which was representing him. The cause of his death is still unknown. He was sent to the hospital just six days after entering the jail, where his condition worsened daily. Even so, no jail staff member noted that he was severely ill. After 44 years behind bars, Vincent Simmons was freed from prison this year. A black man, Simmons was convicted in 1977 for crimes he says he didn't commit and is suing the officials who may have orchestrated a cover-up for a white man who had connections with police. Vincent Simmons' conviction was overturned in February by a judge who said Simmons, age 70, didn't get a fair trial because jurors never heard key evidence in his favor. A jury of 11 white men and a black woman convicted Simmons unanimously of attempted aggravated rape against a 14-year-old pair of white twin sisters. He was sentenced to back-to-back 50-year prison terms. The case against Simmons took place 60 days after the alleged attempted rapes. The twins did not immediately report the crime. Once they did, a lineup was ordered. Simmons was the only man placed in handcuffs in the lineup, and the girls identified him. In the lawsuit filed Tuesday in U.S. District Court for Western Louisiana, Simmons alleged that Avoyel's parish prosecutors and sheriff's office officials framed him to cover for a prominent white family in the area. The suit claims that Keith Laborde, the son of the Avoyel's parish assessor, a cousin of the twins, had sexually molested one of them. Robert Laborde, a relative of the Labordes and the twins, was a sheriff's deputy at the time. The suit reads that the deputy arrested Simmons, quote, on view, without probable cause, and with knowledge of his innocence. The suit went on, quote, Robert Laborde possessed Simmons, pressured Simmons to confess, and physically assaulted and indeed shot Simmons when he refused to admit guilt. Two of the defendants in this case, with powerful positions as parish assessor and deputy sheriff, were named Laborde, and with family honor at stake, they collaborated under color of law with their fellow officers to ensure that Simmons was put away. In today's feature report, we have an excerpt from Big Talk a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. This comes from an encore presentation of Big Talk, where host Michael Glab speaks with reporter, photographer, author, and journalism instructor Steve Hicks. We turn now to that interview. Higgs started to become an advocate for the environment and nature more than 50 years ago when, as a student at Indiana University, he happened upon Bloomington's celebration of the very first Earth Day. That was in Dunmeadow in 1970. In Higgs' recollection, the sound of the word environment appealed to him on a deep level. After earning his master's degree, Higgs worked as a reporter for the Herald Times beginning in the middle 1980s, covering several important local environmental issues, including a proposal by the Westinghouse Company and local officials to build a PCB slash solid waste incinerator southwest of the city, and another proposal 
to clear cut a huge portion of the Hoosier National Forest. Higgs went on to work for the Indiana Department of Environmental Management under its then administrator, John Hamilton, now Bloomington's mayor. After that, Higgs started his own independent news outlet called the Bloomington Alternative. He's also run a guide service called Natural Bloomington Eco Tours, and he's written several books. His most successful were A Guide to Natural Areas of Southern Indiana, 119 Unique Places to Explore, and a companion volume covering Northern Indiana. Last week, we left off talking about those books and a third called Eternal Vigilance, Nine Tales of Environmental Heroism in Indiana. All three books were published by Indiana University Press. What is environmental heroism? What constitutes that? What, the, what that book was, that one, I wrote that one at the very end of my tenure at, at uh, the HT. In uh -huh. fact, that book had come out, an interesting HT uh, period there. There was a group of very conservative uh, journalism students who did what journalism students do. They went out and they did investigation and to prove that the HT was just a bunch of Democrats, they went down to the, to the election office, uh, the clerk's office, and got the primary voting histories, which showed that every reporter at the HT, except for Kurt Vanderdusen and me, voted all in the Democratic, I shouldn't say everyone, but all the ones who mattered, they all yeah. voted in Democratic primaries, where I had voted in a couple of Republican primaries. Uh, but one of the things that they attacked me on was that I was friends with all these environmentalists because I'd written this book that came out in 95, or I think it was 96 is when it came out. Uh, no, it would have been 95 probably. But it was a collection of profiles of leading environmentalists in the state of Indiana between the 50s and uh, the late 90s. People like Herb and Charlotte Reed from the Save the Dunes Council, the people who literally saved the Indiana, uh, the Lake Michigan Lakeshore from becoming Gary and all the way to Michigan City. That right. was the plan. They saved that, and to this day, the, which is now the Indiana Dunes National Park, has the greatest biodiversity of any plot of land in, the, in North America because of Herb and Charlotte Reed. Uh, Jeff Stant, who is still very active, he was the first uh, director of the Hoosier Environmental Council. He's also the person who got me into environmentalism, organizing for the uh, Sierra Club chapter in Bloomington in, uh, when my daughters were young, it would have been 82 and 83, just before I went back to grad school. So it would have been 79 and 80, I guess. Uh, but Jeff Stan and organizing the state there in Bloomington, I featured um, John Foster, who was one of the people who fought the PCB incinerator and stopped the PCB incinerator, one of those original guys who took it on and, and built the movement. Andy Mahler, who was instrumental in saving the Hoosier National Forest from that 1985 clear-cutting plan. Bob Clowitter, uh, who saved uh, Patoka Lake from having a big end of the four winds kind of development on it. So those were several of the people. There was a woman who fought uh, landfills in West Central Indiana. Terry Moore was her name. So those were the kind of people. So I was able to tell their life stories with the stories of their victories great major uh, environmental victories in stopping the Hoosier National Forest from being clear-cut. Over half of the forest is off limits to, uh, to logging right now, when in fact they had a plan to, to clear-cut 82% of it, 81% of it over a 120-year period. Wow. Uh, stopping that incinerator, you know, they were going to put a toxic waste incinerator where the Dillman Road sewage, well, I don't have to tell you, you wrote a book, uh, a chapter in a book on it, but they were going to build that incinerator down there 
taking PCBs, condensing them into more toxic chemicals called dioxins and furans that would be drifting over Bloomington and the IU campus for eternity in, a, right, in right. an experimental incinerator that nobody had ever tried before, but they were sure they could burn trash and burn PCBs by burning trash, which was preposterous. So, you know, those kind of victories, we don't get those kind of victories anymore. That was back when democracy worked, when citizens yeah. could rise up and say, no Bloomington mayor, no Indiana state government, no US EPA, you're not going to build this damn incinerator in our town. And because they were right, they stopped. You know, trying to understand that story, and as you uh, uh, mentioned, uh, I worked with Charlotte Zitlow on her memoir, Minister's Daughter, and a huge part of that was uh, her part in playing a role against that PCB incinerator. For the life of me, I thought the top of my head was going to come off trying to figure that whole thing out, and I'm willing to bet the top of your head was going to come off too back when you were trying to cover it. Well, you know, there was a time when, when we first became, started getting more and more com computerized at the HT and we could actually see how many stories were written. We could do a search for PCBs. There was a time and not just me, Steve Hennefeld uh, wrote there, other people right. wrote stories as well. Although I was the, the main reporter there were, in one year, we wrote 180 stories on PCBs. Wow. On average, we wrote a story every other day on PCBs. People were getting tired of the story. Readers. They were. Yeah, they even, even though this thing might have profoundly changed the nature of Bloomington, the nature of the very air we were breathing. Exactly. Exactly. And, and as you know from having written that chapter, I mean, Charlotte Zitlow, she was the pariah. Okay, I mean, the state, Mayor Allison, the city administration, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, the US EPA, they were all full speed ahead. We're gonna do this. There is absolutely nothing wrong with this. And Charlotte was able to stand up to them and say, no, you are wrong. And it worked in the end. And that's also what journalism does. You know, it wasn't like we weren't also quoting the city and, all, and the EPA and all those guys, but we told that full story to the point that it, it, became, it ended up to the point Whereas I told uh, one of your fellow colleagues there at WFHB a couple of days ago, you couldn't get elected surveyor in the city of Bloomington unless you were opposed to that incinerator. Oh, that's, wow. the way this, that's the way the city, the city turned in a matter of seven years. But you know what, you know what was the final, well, we, want, we don't need to rehash that old story, but it was an amazing story. As I, as I told uh, Bree a couple of days ago, this is by far the biggest story, the biggest issue that I think this community ever has or ever will face. Well, what's the story you were going to tell? Why not? Well, you know, I mean, the original opposition to the PCB was a ragtag group of sort of radical lefties. But I mean, they were people that, that people really didn't take very seriously. I mean, yeah. I had politicians to me kind of snicker and mutter people's names, people who I really admired, you know, people who weren't experts, but knew what they were talking about. Right. And I mean, those people were just the kind of people that general, as a rule were simply not listened to. But when Charlotte started listening to them, okay, that legitimized them and they were right. I mean, there are people in the city of Bloomington who did and today know more about PCBs than people anyplace else on the planet. And this, uh, by the way, is when Charlotte Zitlow was a member of the Monroe County Commission. She was a Monroe County Commissioner. That's right. And the county was also a party. So she had, she had right. power because the county was also a party to this consent decree with the other four governmental agencies. So when Charlotte refused to go along with it, 
that's what started the ball rolling. And as I said, over the course of time, as we fully covered that at the HT when we had real journalism and when citizens could actually prevail, we stopped that thing. Westinghouse did not build it and there's never been anything like it built in the country. And they're just now trying to get back the land upon which that Westinghouse plant over on Curry Pike, I believe, yes. uh, was sitting and it was leaching uh, PCB stuff into the soil and uh, literally even putting it into the sewers so that it went into the, to the water table eventually. Well, that, that's, how, that's how it all began, was the city discovered that Westinghouse was dumping uh, PCB oils down their drains to the Winston Thomas Sewage Treatment Plant on South Walnut Street there right by the recycling center. And I mean, Westinghouse wasn't breaking any rules. We were just learning about PCBs, which they had been dumping in the landfills and six landfills around the area and down their drains, uh, five landfills in Winston Thomas, all of which became Superfund sites. That's how the whole thing, that's how, how the whole thing was discovered. And right. as damaging as it was to everything else, the worst part of it was, was the workers at Westinghouse. Yes. They were told, oh my God, in fact, the plant manager stuck his arm in a vat full of PCBs to show the workers how safe it was. He <laughs> told them the PCBs were so safe they could eat them on their post toasties in the morning. <laughs> There's another cultural reference that only us old guys get post <laughs> But those guys ended up dying at, at enormously higher rates than normal of skin and brain cancer. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noelle Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Michael Glab. Kite Line is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Oni Afuaco. And I'm Tilly Robinson. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe to never miss another local program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. 
Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 